Okay, good evening, everyone. So we are recording. However, let me just say that I don't plan on putting this year's series of lectures on YU Torah, uh, in part because of the sensitive nature of the subject matter, but also because I don't feel like it. Uh, but I will record every week. And if you miss a week, you can email me and I'll send you the Zoom link, which will be available for about a month after each uh, lecture is recorded. But then it gets deleted because there's a limited uh, capacity on Zoom to uh, to save recordings. OK, so our topic this year is Israel's clandestine activities. We're going to go through basically a chronological history of uh, the intelligence services of Israel and their exploits. So we're talking about the Mossad, the Shin Bet, Amman, and other minor, lesser known, but still important organizations, including LACAM, which was involved with uh, nuclear and scientific materials. Uh, but tonight we're going to begin with the stuff that happens prior to the establishment of the state. So tonight's session is all about the Shai, or the Sheirut Yidiot, which was the precursor of the Mossad and the Shin Bet. Um, I'll begin with a comment by David Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion was already a leading figure in the Yishuv um, in the 19-teens. And by the 1920s, had come to dominate the, the labor wing of Zionism. And by 1931-33, labor Zionism comes to dominate all of Zionism. And he's the leading political figure in the, in the whole country. Uh, but already by the 1920s, Ben-Gurion felt that in the long run, there's going to be war with the Arabs. And that Israel or the Jewish people, the Yishuv, is numerically inferior and would have a hard time winning in a you know, direct battle royale with the Arabs. And so in order to overcome the demographic disadvantage, the Jews would have to have uh, far superior intelligence services. And these needed to be developed. The people involved did not really have professional experience just yet. They would have to cultivate that experience. There would be some uh, Jews who would serve in the British intelligence during World War II, and we'll get to that eventually. But in the earlier phases, prior World War II, it's all just uh, learning on the job, on the go. Well, how did the Shai or the Sheirut Yediot begin? What are its origins? So it began as a bunch of policemen and government employees who work for the British mandate, but who acting on their own initiative, pass along information to the Haganah, to Jewish defensive authorities, that they think is critical to the defense of Jewry. So here you have people who are being paid by the government, by the Gentile government, the British, but have sworn a loyalty oath to the Haganah, uh, where the two aspects of their identity are crossing paths and intersecting and conflicting, and they're choosing very much uh, the Jewish side of their identity. So this is the beginnings of the Shai, and it's the first group out of about what we might say is five different groups of Jews who are in government service and who could be helpful and of varying degrees are helpful. So the first group are those who are absolutely you know, loyal to the cause of Jewish nationalism, are members of the Haganah and are members of the British civil service. The second category of people who might have been just as helpful as the first category are those who are government employees and have access to fairly sensitive information that the Jews would want to have uh, and are willing to pass it along to the Jewish authorities, but for whatever reason are not officially members of the Haganah. 
Why are they not members of the Haganah? So in some cases, it was a strategic decision because they held senior civil service ranks that it would be uncomfortable for them, given how elevated a position they have in government service, to also be a sworn member of the Haganah. But categories one and two are you know, loyal to the cause of Zionism and will pass along any and all information that is useful to the Jewish people. Category three are civil servants who have to be reminded every now and then of their Jewish patriotic duty. In other words, really, they just work for the government. Yes, there's a Jewish Zionists. They made Aliyah. They're part of the Yishuv. But you have to remind them every now and then, hey, give us some you know, some nuggets of information if you haven't. Um, and they'll give when solicited, but then will slip black back into indifference until you solicit them again. They're not actively involved in feeding information to uh, Jewish intelligence uh, forces. The fourth category are those Jewish civil servants who really only care about their careers and who don't want to help. And would only help the cause of the Haganah if really pressured with physical force. Like, you know, you, you must give us and we'll, we'll, we'll pummel you. And the, the last category, the fifth category, and it's almost shocking that this category even exists, are those Jews who worked for the British and who, who actively opposed Zionism and who opposed the speaking of Hebrew. Who are these people? What are they doing in Palestine in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s? The answer is... There, there are two t- two types who fit into this category. One are British Jews who just happen to have government jobs and were assigned to Palestine, but have no interest in the Jewish national project in Eretz Israel and who don't speak Hebrew. Okay, and, and the other are people who who made Aliyah out of because of an emergency whether German Jews who went because of the Nazis, but who really were ideologically not interested in Zionism, whatever it might be, there are some Jews who, who, don't, who reject Hebrew and reject Zionut, despite living in Eretz Israel. Okay, now, when it comes to Haganah intelligence services, they want information. But how do you get information? So sometimes you have to pay for it. Uh, the source is not willingly giving it up, but only will do so if compensated. And the policy of the Shai was that information gleaned from Jews who, for, who are fulfilling their patriotic duty is much more reliable than that which had to be bought on the open market. And there's a certain logic to this. If, if, if someone is a hired goon, is a mercenary, and giving you information... It may be false. It may be deliberately false. You have to, you know, trust but verify sort of thing. As opposed to if a Jew is doing his patriotic duty, then presumably, unless he blundered and got it wrong by accident, what he's feeding you is accurate. Okay. So one of the uh, the key tasks of Jewish intelligence services during the British Mandate period was to prevent the discovery of illegal arms. Remember, the British are in control, and they make the rules about who can have guns. And they will stack the deck, unfortunately, in favor of Arab gun possession and against Jewish gun possession. And especially after the Arab riots of 1920, 21, and then 29, and then, of course, 36 to 39, it becomes essential for Jews to fit, to defend themselves with armed force. I mean, this goes back to the days of Bar Giora and Hashomer, even before the Haganah. But certainly in the 20s and 30s, you have to have guns. 
and if the British are confiscating them because they're so-called illegal, then what your intelligence service must be able to do is to alert you when the British are on the lookout and are going to go sweeping through the countryside trying to scoop up weapons using their primitive metal detectors and whatever other uh, um, tools they had at their disposal. So if, if the intelligence operatives are, are able to, to tell ahead of time when this or that British uh, uh, unit is going to come swooping down uh, on the, this or that kibbutz or moshav, you have time to do what? To move your arsenal, your cache of weapons, to a different hideout. So in, in, in uh, modern Hebrew... The, the word for weapons cache was slick. S-L-I-K, or Samach Lamed Yud Kuf. Why slick? Aside from the fact that it's a slick word, okay? Uh, it's because lesalek means to get rid of in biblical Hebrew. And what are you trying to do here? You're trying to get rid of the evidence. You, 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 know, you, you move it from here to there, you get rid of it so they don't catch you. Well, uh, the Shai's job was to be, to tell the kibbutzim and moshevim to be on the lookout. It's a game of hide-and-go-seek. So the Shai eventually stole information uh, from British police headquarters about gun confiscation. And the British were clearly not neutral. They, they made much greater effort to disarm Jews than they did to disarm the Arabs. But good intelligence and Jewish loyalty to the national cause helped keep confiscations to a minimum, as opposed to the Arabs who had very poor intelligence and were not really united. They were divided every man for himself, as is often the case with the Arabs, and their gun confiscation rates were much higher, despite lackluster British enforcement efforts. Now, each gun was very precious, was very precious to the issue. You know, buying weapons was not so simple. It was a complicated task in its own right. And if you had guns, you didn't want to lose them uh, in, in some kind of raid. So everything was done. Every bullet, every every rifle, every pistol even was uh, of such great importance, given how few there were. Now, sometimes the the British authorities used agent provocateurs to try to trick Haganah men into illegal arms purchases. Uh, the, the unit of the, of the British police that was involved, it was like the enemy par excellence of, of the Yishuv and of Haganah intelligence, was the CID, the Criminal Investigative Division, the CID. Any book you'll read about British Mandate Palestine, the CID is, you know, on every page, basically. Criminal Investigative Division. And... Um, there was the responsibility of the of Haganah intelligence to identify who were the legit dealers of weapons, arm smugglers, and who really just was working for the government and was, was going to con you and then get you caught. So how do you get weapons? Well, the Shai, the, the, the Haganah intelligence, would uh, do reconnaissance missions of British military depots Um looking for a potential supply for, for the Haganah. And this was especially true in World War II, when the British military had a tremendous uh, a depot in Palestine as a, a, a way station for its forces going around the world. And then after World War II was over, when the, the British at first thought they weren't going to need all this stuff, they were looking to dispose of it. 
So stealing it became a lot easier. You cut a hole in the fence of the military depot and you steal some stuff. So the Haganah was able to steal 300 rifles in one random day in 1943. It was a big, big hole for them. Uh, another way of acquiring weapons was to get them imported from outside the country under the, um, the guise of importing benign products. For example, cement for construction purposes. Remember, in the 1930s, there's a massive boom of construction in the issue. The population is exploding. It's going higher and higher. Tel Aviv is growing as a city. And cement is being brought in. So uh, several hundred barrels of cement were brought in 1935. And in those barrels were uh, a bunch of rifles in each barrel. So a huge hole was brought in at one time under the pretext of being for construction equipment. Okay, now unloading weapons was a challenge because where is it how is it entering the country not by air and probably not even by land almost certainly it's by sea and the port of jaffa uh you know the stevedores of jaffa who are working in the port who are they for the most part arabs okay so it's not exactly the safest way to bring in weapons for jewish national defense if the arabs control the port so one of the thing one of the peculiar byproducts or accidental byproducts of the Arab riots of 36 to 39 was the uh, the need to develop the Tel Aviv port. Tel Aviv doesn't really have but naturally uh, a good spot for a port. It's not deep enough. And so they had to build a, a breakwater, a jetty, and it's still there to this day. It doesn't function really as a port anymore, but um, you can still see it if you go to the beach. And the, the responsibility of Haganah intelligence was to make sure that you secure that port from sabotage, so that weapons can be brought in, and have um, spies still back at the old Jaffa port to hear what's going on, because you may need to fall back upon that if necessary, and, you know, don't give up hope. Make sure you have inside information about what's going on there, too. Well, one of the ways that weapons was were brought into the country was by individual immigrants, in other words, it's someone coming from Europe, most likely, a Jew with his family, and he has a gun. So legally, can't bring it into the country. But if you hide it on your person or in your uh, on your, your, your duffel bag and your suitcase, maybe you'll get away with it. So one of the, the, uh, the jobs of the Haganah intelligence was to figure out of the, of the passengers who were arriving as lawful immigrants. We're not talking about yet illegal immigration. We'll get to that soon. But even among lawful immigration... Who might be able to smuggle in some weapons? It wasn't encouraged because it was kind of risky and it wasn't worth maybe uh, being incarcerated over one one pistol. But some some immigrants insisted for their own personal protection that they had to have it. One guy smuggled it in a, in a jar of jam, and it was up to the to the Haganah to figure out who had it and you know to use it for national purposes. Um, the the other major job of the, of the Haganah intelligence related to weapons was the underground arms factories. I don't know, maybe some of you have been to the museum where there's, there's a museum about this, underground arms factory. Um, and it was called in Hebrew, Tasiat or Tas. And it was the Holy of Holies. It was like the Kodesh Kadashim. The most secretive thing in the whole enterprise of the Haganah was arms production. And the Haganah intelligence had a job. Make sure that the British never find out where this, these factories are. 
absolutely cannot find out if because if the factories get shut down, we're going to lose our major source of uh, of physical protection. Um, the the Haganah had to screen employees, Jewish employees of Tas. Why? Because you don't want to have someone who's you know engaged in subterfuge and is going to ruin everything. Uh, the the later comparison would be the Shin Bet and Dimona. The, the nuclear facility. You don't want to have a Mordechai Venunu situation where he's ratting on the, the Jews to, 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 to the Goyim in the British press. So so Haganah intelligence has a real serious job. You have to make sure only trustworthy people are involved in TAS and that nobody ever finds out where these factories are located. We're going to see maybe in next session that during the 1948 war, uh, there was a Jew, Tobiansky, who was um, given a court-martial and executed, the only Jew ever executed by the state of Israel, um, because or by the IDF, because he supposedly was guilty of, of um, exposing to the Jordanians uh, during the war, during, to the Arab Legion, where there was a Taz factory making bullets in Yerushalayim. Was he innocent or was he guilty? So... Posthumously, he was found by the Ben Gurion's government to be innocent, and the court martial uh, was was seen as you know illegitimate and wrong. And the guy who, who had him executed had to you know lose his job as the head of intelligence. Okay, so uh, Tas made bullets from copper stolen from British Army stores, and the problem is if you steal too much, you know tafasta maruba lo tafasta. What does that mean? If you grab a little bit, you'll get it. If you grab too much, you won't be able to keep it. Talmudic dictum. So uh, what happened was they stole way too much copper from the British. And when you steal too much, you're going to get caught. There's no way you can get away with it. But if the Haganah intelligence has Jewish police officers working for them who can now go into police headquarters and then either steal the documentation or doctor the reports, then all of a sudden you can get away with a lot more than you otherwise would be able to. So having friends who are in the administration goes a long way in covering the tracks of theft of military-grade equipment. Okay. Um the Hebrew resistance. So we've learned in past years that from 1945 to 1948, there was the Hebrew resistance. There was a united resistance of the Haganah, the Yergun and the Stern Gang, uh, just after World War II that lasted about from September of 45 through the King David Hotel bombing. Um, and Shai's informers told the Haganah about a planned British crackdown on the Jewish resistance forces. So because the British really were very, very agitated and could not handle it anymore. They didn't like that they're getting blown to pieces and the railways are being bombed. They had enough. They wanted to really crack down on, on, on the Jewish freedom fighters. So they had a plan to arrest massive numbers of Haganah, Gun and Stern Gang. The problem was, as General Evelyn Barker, who was the uh, head of the British military in Palestine, said, quote, the Jews know all government secrets and army plans within 24 hours of our taking a decision on them. Their intelligence system works perfectly. In other words, it was very difficult for the British police and the British military stationed in Palestine to come up with an elaborate plan to arrest 
hundreds, if not thousands of Jewish fighters without the Jews knowing about it in advance because there are Jewish employees working in government service in Palestine and they're going to do their patriotic duty and spill the beans. Okay, so um, what ends up happening is there is Operation Agatha, which was June 29th, 1946. And about 2,700 Jews were arrested, including leading members of the Jewish agency, although not Ben Green because he was out of the country, and leading members of the Palmach and the Haganah, and even some Irgunists. Uh, but that Operation Agatha did not um, succeed to the extent that the British wanted it to in terms of gun confiscation and weapons confiscation because of this Gentile, an Ohev Yisrael, and his name was John Smith, a real good Goyesha nomen, John Smith. Okay, so he, many British uh, uh, police officers in Palestine had philo-Semitic attitudes. Now, also plenty had anti-Semitic attitudes, and some were neutral, but because there were some who were philo-Semitic, so a guy like John Smith, he's going to reveal to the Jews ahead of time um, critical information. What is this critical information? Hundreds and hundreds of pages of research, sort of opposition research, compiled by the CID, the Criminal Investigative Division, on every known member of the Haganah and the Palmach. So it, it ran to hundreds and hundreds of pages with photographs, addresses, phone numbers. There was no email address in those days. But every, every nugget of information that could be useful in a raid against these people to, all, to arrest them all. And John Smith handed it over to uh, the Haganah intelligence. Now, the, the challenge was, how do you copy this information quickly and then return the file to the original cabinet before anybody knows that you had it. Because if the British get wind of the fact that the Jews had access to this file, they'll know it's no longer useful and they won't act on it. But if they don't know that, they will act on it. And what will the Jews do? Tell all the guys who are in the book, grow a mustache, grow a beard, put on a different uh, uh, article of clothing, move three blocks over, don't be at home that night. You know, there, there are ways of avoiding uh, capture of evading, you know, uh, the dragnet, if you know it's coming. So that's why uh, the operation to arrest uh, Haganah Pamach was was fairly successful, but not nearly as successful as it could have been, courtesy of a favor done by John Smith. Okay. Um, now, the uh, one of the, one of the ways that the shy was. Um, was able to to defend Jewish interests was to protect the Kol Yisrael. What is Kol Yisrael? The Jewish radio station, which was operating illegally. The British wanted to shut down Jewish radio transmissions, but they couldn't find the transmitters. Despite every effort and very serious efforts scouring the country for where are these transmitters for Kol Yisrael, they couldn't find them. So if they couldn't find them, what's the next best uh, poss- uh, uh, solution? To jam the radio with some technological means to jam the radio signal. And the Jewish response was, okay, fine, we'll jam the signal of official British radio out of Jerusalem. Uh, we can't have stations, you won't have stations. But basically, for most of the years of 1940 to 1948, uh, the, the Kol Yisrael was able to function. 
And that was the predecessor of Galei Tzahal, of the uh, army radio in Israel. Okay. Um, during the... What the? the this, yeah. There's a question. Question? Anybody? No? Okay. So, uh, during the siege of Tel Aviv, uh, in J- July 30th, 1946, the uh, Operation Shark... The Jewish intelligence services had a problem. How do you continue to operate when Israel's major or Palestine's major Jewish city is under siege and the British army is locking down neighborhood by neighborhood where until they sweep through the neighborhood and investigate every home, nobody from that neighborhood can get out. So how do you share information without technological means under siege conditions? This would seem to be like an interesting question. How do, how do you work under the most impossible of conditions when you're an intelligence operative? So there were three ways that information continued to be transmitted under these conditions. And maybe if you put your thinking caps on, you could come up with a few of them. One was the Palestine Electric Corporation. Who controls the electricity in Palestine? So Pinchas Rutenberg, back in the late 19-teens, early 1920s, he founded the Palestine Electric Corporation. It was a Jewish-owned company, for-profit enterprise, that supplied electricity for most of the country. And when the wires go down, the British need them fixed, because the British need electricity to, to run their operations. And who are the employees of the PEC? Jews, including Haganah members, including Haganah Shai operatives. Okay, so that's, that's like a con ed worker being a, a, a spy. Another way, Magen David Adom, ambulance services. Okay, who, who operates the ambulances? Oh, an EMS. The EMS also happens to be a member of the Haganah, who also happens to be a member of the Haganah Intelligence Services. And the third way uh, was the Tel Aviv Fire Department. That, you know, you set a, a little minor fire in some apartment block, and all of a sudden, you call the fire department in, and the British have to allow the trucks to go in with the hoses and put out the fire. So by these surreptitious means, you could continue to relay information regarding uh, you know, serious defensive activities and, and arms caches, even under siege conditions. Okay. Another little little nugget about the Shai was that um, David Ben-Gurion, as I mentioned, was not arrested during Operation Agatha, during Black Sabbath. Why? Because he was out of the country. But in general, the British authorities tended to respect the uh, sort of consular status of the leadership of the Jewish agency, for the most part, including especially Ben-Gurion. And he's like the prime minister of the Jews. And so when everyone else is under curfew, he was given some sort of leeway as the, the sort of the, 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 lead, the political leader of the Jews. Um, you know, he's not going to be searched. He, he can move about the country when others can't. And he had suitcases. Now, these suitcases didn't have fancy suits in them and ties and and and, and, and Rolex watches. No, Ben Green was a pretty simple guy when it came to physical possessions. But rather, the one thing he he had and he had to have were access to his official papers, including papers about intelligence operations. And so the 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 shy operatives, their job was to protect. Lahavdi, like the nuclear football, the American president has the nuclear football. It's always on a chain next to the guy. So David Ben Gurion's suitcases were always under uh, tight screw, tight watch by the Haganah. All right. Now, Haganah intelligence 
spied on Arabs all throughout the Mandate period. Of course, after 48, the Shin Bet will spy on domestic Arabs, uh, Israeli Arabs, and then later Palestinians in the territories. And the Mossad will spy on um, you know, neighbor, neighboring Arab countries. But the Haganah intelligence spied on Palestinian Arabs in the, in the Mandate period. And they worked with the Arab section of the Jewish agency, which was a political department aimed at cultivating relationships with the Arab world. There was an intelligence map of every single Arab town and village in Palestine. How did they do this? How did they have maps of some you know, godforsaken Arab village in the middle of Samaria? The answer is that reconnaissance squads... Like, you know, so like uh, you know, the the the, the Google sent those those driverless cars around, uh, taking pictures everywhere for Google Maps. So you had the reconnaissance squads of um, Jewish surveyors and cartographers, and Jewish mayors of nearby settlements would go drink coffee and meet the the neighboring Arab mayor over a cup of uh, coffee in the in the, in the in the cafe. So this was all designed just to have some awareness. That eventually, when we have to go to war with these people, what what do their towns look like? It may be irrelevant in the 30s when it was being done, but it would prove relevant in the long term. The Jews also benefited from certain notables who were respected by Arabs. For example, Yosef Teitelbaum was the most famous. He was known as Abu Ismain, or the father of Shimon. Uh, and he was respected by the Arabs for his judgments. So because you had these like uh, Jewish sheikhs, uh, Jewish Abu so-and-so, who the Arabs revered as, oh, he's a smart man, he's a, you know, that person was able to use their connections in uh, Arab society to lean important defensive uh, intelligence. Okay. Now, the uh, the last category of people who helped spy on the Arabs were Jewish clerks, working for the Mandate government and positioned in Arab towns. And there was a substantial number of such people because, remember, they spoke English. How many Arabs, how many Palestinian Arabs in the 20s and 30s spoke a fluent English to have a government job? Not that many. And so you had Jews who, you know, it might have been physically dangerous for them. They might have been scared out of their minds to go to work every day in some random town, which was 100% Arab, but they had the cover of being a government employee. And they could use that use that position to to spy. Okay, um, the, the Haganah intelligence defended Tel Aviv during the 1936 riots, and they needed information about a, um, attacks that were going to happen, emanating from Jaffa or from to the north and to the east of the city. So they needed op- they needed uh, agents who were willing to spill the beans on their own fellow Arabs. The one who was by far the most helpful in 1936 in Tel Aviv was an Arab agent named Khazanovich. Now, how does an Arab get the name Khazanovich? The answer is it was just a nickname. He was the Khazan in the mosque. He was the Muazim. So they called him Khazanovich because he was the one who called out the Allah Akbar business from the, from the top of the mosque. Khazanovich. Good. Now, um, Arab-on-Arab violence during the 36 to 39 um, riots was great from the perspective, the long-term prospects of of Jewish nationalism because many, many Arab fighters died. So 
this helped in 1947, 48, 49, in the sense that the Jews had able-bodied men of a certain age, and the Arabs had far fewer than they otherwise might have, because they died 10 years earlier. However, from an intelligence-gathering point of view, it was a little bit of a problem, because people who were reliable assets for the Shai, for the Haganah intelligence, sometimes they died, or they got caught by their own fellow Arabs, and then were butchered and, and, and you know, uh, and assassinated in, in brutal fashion. So new sources of intelligence had to be found. Sometimes these people were double agents and would double-cross you. Uh, others were just despicable human beings uh, willing to sell out their own for, for a dollar. And the, the Haganah developed a slogan, accept information, but hate the informer. Don't develop a, like a loving relationship with the informer himself because he doesn't love you. He loves the dollar you're paying him, if, if that. Um, there was one guy who they thought was a decent fellow, and his nickname was Abu Shilling. Not Kurt Schilling, like the pitcher, but Abu Shilling. Why Abu Shilling? Because he gave him two shillings a day. Three pounds, of, Palestine pounds a month. That was his Parnassim. Okay. Some decent Arabs would occasionally reveal information to the Haganah out of the goodness of their heart, not for payment, because they did not want to see an unprovoked attack kill innocent people. So we shouldn't ignore that. I mean, it didn't happen all that often, but when it did happen, it was much appreciated. Okay. Um, one of the things that the Arabs did to make money, and I was listening to NPR today, uh, and NPR was saying how of the, the 3,000 phone calls that the city New York City has gotten over the last two years, for noise complaints, uh, where you get paid a percentage of the fee that is collected for the noise complaint, supposedly 96% of all the calls were made by two people. And they got all this money that the city council is going to have to change the law that you can only collect like pennies on the dollar for the fee because they don't want this to be like a, a, a money-making operation. So why do I bring this up? Because during the riots, what ended up happening was the, the electricity grid of Palestine was often targeted. Why was it targeted? Because it was owned by the Jews. So you're you're damaging the, the economy of the Yishuv if you're an Arab who places a, places a landmine by uh, you know one of the, the utility poles. So aside from knocking out the Eruv, you also knock out the, uh, uh, the power line. Well, what happens to the, the Palestine Electric Corporation, they figure we have to give in financial incentives to get people to report to us when they see dangerous activity in, the, in close proximity to our facilities. So what would happen? A scam. Some Arab would deliberately place a phony landmine near the, near the power line, then call up the phone number and say, I found the landmine, get paid the money for having found it, and then put it out again <laughs> a couple of days later somewhere else. So uh, everybody has their own scheme to try to profit off the Arab riots. Okay. Um, another way that the Jews were able to spy on the Arabs was actually not to do any spying at all, but to rely upon the British. Remember, many, many more Arabs were killed during the Arab riots by the British than were killed by Jewish defenders defending the Jewish community. The The British... Uh, government, as much as they might have not been so friendly to Zionism at this point, were 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 very hostile to Arab bad actors and spied upon them heavily. So if the Jews are concerned with getting information about 
hostile Arabs, but so are the British and the British control the country. All you have to do is break into the British police officers uh, headquarters and steal the files. And since there are Jewish officers working for the British, go right ahead. Turn the key, open the open the chair, the uh, the desk, and voila, you have uh, uh, intelligence reports about dangerous Arabs. Of course, that doesn't work anymore after the establishment of the state. Then you know the Jews actually have to do the uh, the real reconnaissance. Okay, another interesting little tidbit about the pre-state era has to do with Nazis and Germans. There were three important German Templar communities in Palestine, some of them dating back as far as 1871. Uh, and they were Wilhelma, Sarona, and Waldheim. Uh, one was in the Galilee, and Waldheim was in the Galilee, and, uh, and Wilhelma was in the middle of the country, and Sarona was in Tel Aviv, or on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, but today is the, where the Kiryai is, military headquarters. Actually, the Mossad headquarters were there for a while. So here you have German uh, Christian colonists who are pro-Nazi in the 30s and are helping the Arabs. So eventually, Haganah intelligence will have to stalk them and the Haganah will issue a kill order. We're going to spend much of this year's sessions on targeted assassinations. So I would suggest you all read Ronan Bergman's book. Uh, just to give you a flavor of some of the, the, the subject matters we're going to cover, not, not all of what we do is about killing. There'll be plenty of other things too. But if you read that book, you'll have an advantage. So one of the first targeted killings was of Otto Wagner, who was the leading Nazi Templar in, in, in uh, Eretz Israel. He was bumped off uh, during the war. Okay. Actually, just after the war ended. So... The last thing I want to talk about tonight is Aliabet, illegal immigration, and the role played by Haganah intelligence in facilitating illegal immigration. So why is illegal immigration so important? Uh, th- those of you who, who we learned Zionism together, you should know this quite well, that the policy of the British during the 1930s, um, before Kristallnacht, talking about the middle 30s, was that Immigration would be up to the absorptive capacity of the country. But how do you define the absorptive capacity of the country? It's very subjective. And if you want to give a low number, you'll give a low number. And the British looking to placate the Arabs gave low numbers. The Jews would say, bring them all in. We'll we'll find jobs for them. We'll find housing for them. It'll be fine. We can handle a major influx. We want them. So the absorptive capacity was one way of keeping things to a minimum. Uh, but the other was, after the White Paper was, was promulgated in thirty nine, that only 15000 a year for the next five years, so 75000 up through 1944, and then nothing with, without Arab consent. So you know, the, the issue of illegal immig- of, of immigration to Palestine was a major political issue for the Americans and for the British, for the government of Clement Attlee, and for the Truman administration, 100,000 certificates, uh, the British rejecting it, Ernest Bevan being an anti-Semite. A lot was going on in the halls of power in Washington and London, but bottom line, on the coast of Eretz Israel, the ships are coming. And the Mossad Aliabet, the Institute for, for Secondary or Legal Immigration, was running the show. So the Mossad Aliabet, they have their operatives all over Europe, in the, uh, the southern European port cities, looking to bring Jews out of the DP camps and elsewhere down to the coast to a port, get them on a boat and send them to the, across the Mediterranean. 
the responsibility of the Haganah intelligence was to make sure that, um, that once people were nearby, that the boat was close to the coast, that they were able to unload their, their merchandise, their people, human cargo. So how do you do that? Well, you got to distract the police. So some of the ways that the police were distracted was there'd be deliberately like a horse thief, a horse theft, uh, you know, a mile inland from the coast. And, the, and someone would call and say, my car was stolen, my horse was stolen, come investigate. And then when the police show up, you give the, the police officer, oh, you want some cognac, you want some wine, you want some whiskey, some vodka, have a schnapps, whatever it is. In the meantime, at that very moment, the uh, under cover of darkness, the immigration ships arrive and unload their, their human cargo. Another one was to have uh, a rape accusation. You, you, you have a couple, a Jewish couple walking on the beach, and all of a sudden some Arab guy passes by and hoots and hollers, and then you call the police, oh, he, he was attempting to rape my wife, my girlfriend. And then they have to investigate the situation um, and get distracted from watching the coast. Another way of distracting, the uh, of uh, avoiding detection was that the Haganah would steal the, the logbook for the British Coast Guard. There were four Coast Guard positions along the coast of the country, spread out about 20 miles between each, and there were launches, there were boats that they would have at each uh, Coast Guard position that would go for periodic uh, uh, runs around to see if anybody was approaching. If you know when the boats are being launched and when they're not, and where there's a sort of a, an open hole in the in, in the, uh, in, in the in the coastal protection, you could sneak a little ship in between and unload your human cargo. Um, the the British had a few Yiddish-speaking operatives who were um, given the responsibility of preventing illegal immigration to Palestine, and the, these operatives would be sent to Italian and Greek and, and sort of Yugoslav ports and Turkish ports from which the illegal immigration ships would be sent. And if the Haganah knew where and when these Yiddish-speaking operatives were going, they would know to avoid sending a ship from that port at that time. So just an awareness of where your enemy is went a long way in, um, in facilitating immigration. Now, there's another thing that happens. So what happens when uh, a Jew wants to come to Palestine in the 1930s, but doesn't have a legal immigration certificate and doesn't really want to go on a rickety ship under cover of darkness, has the money to be a tourist and enter the country, country legally, but then overstay his or her tourist visa? Like is often the case in the United States with you know people from other parts of the world who overstay tourist visas and never never leave and then eventually want to regularize their status. So, if you are a, 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 a permanent tourist, so to speak, how do you make sure that the British are not hounding you and get to get you know to to uh, to be deported? So Haganah intelligence would find out who these people are and manufacture fraudulent certificates for them whether uh, from the rabbinate or from whatever ministry, so that it would be possible 
um, for these people to stay. Now, another consideration was that illegal status by um, illegal status for Jews is dangerous, not just vis-a-vis the British directly, but even with regard to fellow Jews. What happens if I get into a fight with somebody? I'm a Jew, he's a Jew. And what? Uh, I know he's an illegal. And let's say he owes me money. I'm the landlord, he's the tenant. So I can always threaten, I'll rat you out to the British, that you're an illegal here, and you'll get deported. So you better pay me, or else, you know, blackmail, that sort of stuff. So when the Haganah intelligence would find out about these kinds of threats, what would they do? They would tell the one doing the threatening and the blackmailing, you better shut up if you know what's good for you. So Jews don't threaten other Jews. And if you do threaten a fellow Jew with deportation, our defense apparatus is going to go after you. Because we can't have that. We have to be united in our patriotism and not let petty fights get in the way. Um, so another another area of concern was the Polish army. What does the Polish army have to do with Palestine? Okay, so those of you who know their, your history, and uh, we discussed this in previous lectures, the, the Anders Polish army was uh, sent to the Middle East and particularly to Palestine in 1942 and stayed there really for the next five years. So what was this army? Remember, Poland was destroyed. Soviet Union took half, Germany took half, and then eventually Germany takes the whole thing. But when Poland was gobbled up, so uh, many of its fighters were exiled to the Soviet Union. But then once the Soviet Union's relationship with Nazi Germany soured after Barbarossa, so an arrangement was made to resurrect the Polish army to fight for the Allies. And a substantial number of the people in that army were Jews. And they got sent to, to Iraq, and then they got sent to Palestine. And here are Polish soldiers, including a substantial percentage of Jews, fighting on behalf of the British in the, in the World War. Well, if I'm a Jew from Poland, and all of a sudden I find myself not in the clutches of Nazism in the Holocaust, but rather in the Middle East. In fact, in Eretz Yisrael, what do I want to do? Defect, get, get out of that army, and just blend into the, to the Jewish population of Eretz Yisrael. So who can tell me who is the most famous person to do that? Who knows the answer? Unmute yourself if you know the answer. Come on, folks. Somebody's got to know the answer. Menachem Begin. Correct. Menachem Begin was the most famous person of the Jew in the, in the Anders army to defect, but he was not the only one. Far from it. There were about 2,500 Jews in that in that group. And the, the responsibility David of the... David Ben-Gurion. Sh- huh? David Ben-Gurion. No, David Ben-Gurion was, was a member of the Turkish military very briefly and then yeah. defected, well, was exiled and then joined uh, uh, the, the, the the Jewish Legion. So, and that was in 1918. We're talking about 1942, 43, 44. Well, um, Shai's job was to get these people out of the military and get them into civilian life, however, by hook or by crook. Also, their job vis-a-vis the Anders Army was to prevent the Polish unit from supporting the Arabs, because in fact they did, that this Polish army was extremely anti-Semitic. Now, why were they so anti-Semitic? I'll give you two explanations. 
One is Yitzchak Shamir's explanation that he famously said and got in trouble for that the Polish uh, people get their anti-Semitism in their mother's milk. That's, you know, one classic Shamirism. But the other is because these were Polish nationalists who felt that the Jews were too um, happy about, were, were, were very happy about the Soviet takeover of Eastern Poland, as though they were, you know, traitors to the cause of independent Poland. But you have to bear in mind, why were the Jews happy about the Soviet takeover of Eastern Poland? Because it meant that the Nazis didn't take over. And it was like at least a two-year reprieve before getting killed. All right, so that's you know. But this is also a pre uh, John twenty third uh, Catholic Church. When You're right. You're, the it's Catholics the Polish believe that the uh, the Jews crucified their savior. That's so right. So listen, po- Polish religious anti semitism goes a long, long way. All right, now that's enough about the shy. Uh If you want to read more about it, there's a book um, by Ephraim Dekel uh, that I bought on Amazon. It has all these interesting stories, many, many more interesting stories about Haganah intelligence from the, the pre-state era. The other thing I want to mention in the couple of minutes we have left about pre-1948 and up to 1948 is Mati Friedman's Spies of No Country. Uh, just for those of you whose cameras are on, if, if you could raise your hand. Did, have you read Spies of No Country? Anybody raise their hand if they read that book? Okay, so it's a short little book. It's a fun book. You can buy it on Amazon for a couple of dollars. Friedman's a good storyteller and a good writer. Uh it's about the, the lives of four um, Middle Eastern Jews, three of whom were born in Arab countries, whether Yemen or Syria or Lebanon. One was born in Yerushalayim. Um, and it's about how they were the earliest of the Mistarvim, those who are Jews who go into Arab lands and pretend to be Arab and spy in Arab lands. Um, of the four, three of them died young in, in the course of their duties. And only one lived to tell the story, and Friedman interviewed him when he was in his 90s, a couple of years back. Um, they didn't actually do all that much. They, they they ran a bodega or a, or a newspaper stand in Beirut, or one of them was in Damascus, one of them was here, there. They were in Arab capitals spying on the Arab world, but not spying on the, you know, the military bases of the Arab world, rather just on day-to-day life and on political developments. Um, but why did Friedman write this book about the Mistarvim? So first of all, it's 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 an interesting story about the origins of Zionist or Israeli um, uh, spy operations against Arab countries. You know, it's the precursor to the Mossad, basically, and people are interested in that. But there's another factor. What Friedman is trying to show is that the Yishuv, the Jewish community of Eretz Israel that becomes the Israeli body politic, is not just white colonialism of Ashkenazim, but rather that the Yichuv has a substantial element of Middle Eastern Jews, and that Zionism is, aside from white man's colonialism, also an insur- an, a minority insurrection within the Middle East, that the, the Jewish Arabs are rebelling against the Jewish, the, 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 the Muslim Arabs, and that these Jews are really Arabs. They're not uh, people pretending to be Arabs. Rather, what are they? They're, they're people who are pretending to be not Arab, pretending to be Arab. Because by language and by culture, these Middle Eastern Jews, their, their, their native tongue was, was Aravit, not Ivrit. Okay, moreover, moreover, culturally, they were more attuned to the Arab world. And what happened? These guys, 
they went to join the Palmach. And the Palmach, what is the Palmach? The Plugot Machatz, the strike force of the Haganah. It's Ashkenazi, Chiloni, secular, and uh, Sabra. What are these uh, These guys? Middle Eastern, Edotem Mizrach, or Sephardic, religious, or at least traditional, and not Sabra, born out of the country. So they had a very hard time ingratiating themselves into the culture, the camaraderie of guys like, you know, Moshe Dayan and Yigal Alon. Those guys were, that's Palmach. But if you're Chabakuk Cohen from, from Yemen, you're not Palmach. So what, what role could they play for their country, for the Jewish national cause, to go and be spies in Arab lands? And that's what they did. But why is the book called Spies of No Country? Because there was no Israel yet. They left while the British were still in control. And when Israel was declared, they were off beyond the border, could not celebrate with their with their kinsmen. Had they died in action, and some of them did, no one would have known any different. Had they abandoned the cause of spying and just blended into the population and married a local girl, Arab girl, no one would have known the difference. They were out there in the yonder by themselves. Spies of No Country is, a, is an apt title of the book. So uh, that was their story. At the same time, however, there were you know more conventional Ashkenazic spies working for the Jewish agency in the Haganah and then early state of Israel in 48-49 who were operating in European capitals and living on a more uh, uh, a healthier budget, so to speak, and living the high life as James Bond-style spies. That couldn't last very long, and Ben Green would shut it down and restart the whole process with a, a Shin Bet and a Mossad. So we'll stop here, and in two weeks' time, we'll reconvene, uh, and we'll discuss the the organizational origins of, under Ben-Gurion of the Shin Bet and the Mossad. Okay? Any questions? Any questions? You can unmute yourself. Yes? No? Maybe? No? Yeah, I, I mentioned, I don't know if you can read my... My message. Let me see. Uh, I just got the book uh, prequel uh, oh. from uh, uh, Rachel Maddow's book, and she mentions that uh, uh, Nazism or uh, Nazi-like uh, ideology was prevalent in America during this period as well, you know, and that uh, Joe Kennedy's uh, example. It's far from unique. You know, a lot of people had this vision of keeping away from uh, the war. And if we must be uh, uh, involved, we must be friendly towards the uh, the Third Reich. So as, as it relates to what I spoke about tonight, I'll tell you yes. that, that <clears throat> the, the Haganah realized a serious problem. You know, during the war... From 39 to 45, the Ben-Gurion policy of we'll fight the white paper like there's no war and we'll fight the war like there's no white paper. That was a way of sort of straddling the fence between the fact that the Third Reich is the enemy of Am Yisrael and the British government with the white paper is doing something very bad to Am Yisrael. But those two enemies of ours are fighting each other. So we have to you know, navigate this, this, this weird situation. However, after 1945, uh, when the war ended, there was a thought that the British should be more conciliatory to the Jews 
because after all, the Arabs had really basically sided with the Nazis and the Yeshuvah sided with the British and sent 26,000 boys uh, to fight in the war, the British army, and then had the Jewish brigade. So, you know, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. So you should be on our team in, in a conflict between the two sides. But what in fact happened was that uh, the prevailing attitudes in the mandate were far more anti-Jewish after the Shoah than even during or before. And that was a very disappointing realization on the part of the Jewish agency and its defense forces. Uh, and many... It was also the influence of the Mufti, you know, the uh, yeah, apparently yeah. The, the Arab cause uh, was uh, aided by the, uh, the kind of alliance of convenience between the Nazis and the uh, and Husseini. You know, yeah, the Mufti yeah. of Jerusalem. Now, what, what, so what, one of the things that ends up happening is um, individual British police officers and soldiers stationed in Palestine will end up making these pro-Nazi comments that are heard by, by Jews. And that's how the Jews know who to watch out for, who's our enemy. Of course, the, the ranks of those enemies will grow as the United Hebrew Resistance ends up blowing up uh, British inst installations and ends up killing a not insignificant number of British officers, especially after the King David. But even before that, the, the British are angry with the Jews and they end up saying like, you know, Nazi style comments off the cuff. Okay, we'll stop here. See everybody in two weeks. Okay. Thank you. What Thank was the you. name of that book that you first mentioned that would give us a heads up if we read it? Uh, 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 Rise and Kill First. Rise Rise up and kill first, yeah. Rise up and kill first, yeah. By Ronan Bergman. Good book. Okay, Very good, good book. everybody.